Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 324. I had so many people asking, where did I get them? How could they get one? And that was that light bulb moment. And I said, okay, let's do this. Attention, gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there. I'm thrilled that you're joining me for this episode today. This past weekend, I attended our Community Fine Arts Festival. This is a juried show attracting artisans from all over the world, even some international entries, and it's really honestly one of my favorite shows of the whole year to go to as an attendee. But I wasn't sure what to expect. Would attendance be down? Would there be fewer booths because there's residual fear of traveling? I just didn't know. Well, I'm happy to report we're back. Normal as the days of old normal can be. At least that's the report from my neck of the woods north of Chicago. I want to remind you that doing events like craft shows and farmers markets offers great photo and posting opportunities for social media. We talked about this in one of our tips and talk episodes in the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. And I bring this up because you've told me you're discouraged when you don't see any of the time and effort you put into social media moving the needle on your sales. So given the time we're in right now, take this as a changing point to do something different. Putting in more time posting in the same way isn't going to magically bring you results. You need to change the way you're posting and what you're posting. You don't need to put in more work. You need to put in the right work. That's when things will change. If you need some help with this, I've got you covered with the Content for Makers program. Content for Makers will enlighten you as to why your social media activities aren't converting into sales. It will also show you how to put less time in and start seeing activity that will increase your sales. Just imagine a day where you know exactly what to post and to get it done in five minutes or less. Then you can spend your time interacting with potential customers, deepening relationships with those you already know, too. And it builds upon itself naturally. Yes, this is possible. Content for Makers includes a step-by-step strategy to formulating your unique plan based on your business and your products. Then you'll have 375 social media prompts over a full year of ideas. Along with the 375 prompts come 375 image suggestions, so you're not left hanging on the creative. These prompts and image suggestions can be used for all platforms and all types of posting. Images, live streaming, reels, even email direction. But that's not all. Posts aren't going to work if the right people aren't seeing them. So you'll also receive a video and a worksheet on how to choose and use hashtags. This is a way to attract the right people who will become your customers. Most people are doing this wrong. There's more to Content for Makers, too. To see all the details, just jump over to giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash content for makers. But honestly, 
at only $27, it's a no-brainer. Why carry on posting as you've been doing all along, expecting different results? Sign up for Content for Makers now and see the transformation of your posting experience change before your very eyes. Giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash content for makers. Ready and waiting for your immediate access right now. Our guest today, I originally met at the Chicago One of a Kind show several years back now. So I got to see her in action before I got to know her on a more personal level. And let me tell you, my friend Debbie and I spent a lot of time in her booth. Since then, she's been an exhibitor at the At Home Craft and Gift Show and also reports to be back on the road at face-to-face shows. So that just reconfirms what I was talking about at the top of this podcast. You're going to love Sue's origin story, a business that started through a laundry mishap. Even more, you'll hear her growth plan, her wins and struggles, and things that have kept her in the small business game for over 25 years. Let's get to our conversation right now. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Sue Burns of Baba Zuzu. Sue started her craft 26 years ago due to a laundry error. You heard me right. A laundry error which reduced Sue's beloved sweaters to a pile of carnage. What would have brought most to tears became a light bulb moment for Sue. Blending her graphic design with her sewing skills, she refashioned the sweaters into new wearables and launched Baba Zuzu. The brand has grown into hats, mittens, scarves, bags, and more for men and women, all made from post-consumer woolens. The last 25-plus years have been a whirlwind of growth, excitement, challenges, and brilliant ideas that have tested Sue's patience as well as rewarded her efforts. Sue says she's grateful for the learning curves that are part of the journey as an artist and an entrepreneur. And today we get to talk to her. Sue, welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share our story today. I know. It's such an original, creative way you got into your business. So I can't wait to share it with everybody as well. Plus, you already know I love your products. <laughs> I do know that. Thank you. But before we go any further, I want to have you introduce yourself in what's become a more creative, traditional way here on the show, and that is through a motivational candle. Share with us what your candle would look like by color and quote. Color is hard, I would say, to narrow down to one color simply because I work with color all day long and I really am sort of forced to use everything. It doesn't mean I love them all, but I do find that I gravitate toward the warmer fall tones. So I would have a color that would kind of roll through, say, olive greens and chestnut browns and some deep oranges and golden yellows. But if I had to choose one, I would go olive green. And I don't know why, but I just really am fond of olive green. Do you feel like your favorite color will change over the course of years? No, because I've been doing this so long, and that still is what speaks to me the loudest. I will say the one that I really cannot resonate with ever is navy blue, and I don't know why, but we sell an awful lot of it throughout our product line. So I really do embrace all of the colors. They just don't all go home with me. That's a good way of saying it. And that's so interesting, Sue, because I never wear navy or any shade of blue, really. Maybe an aqua from time to time. 
But I also yeah. am not a blue girl. I'm a total black girl for sure. But anyway, so that's interesting. If it were wardrobe, I would say black. It's just practical and easy. Yes, agree. Okay, so we've got your really warm-toned autumny color candle. And what would be the saying on the candle? Okay, so this is a favorite. If you shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll still be among the stars. Love it. And what does that mean to you? It means to go for it. Go all the way. And even if you don't get as far as you think, you've still gone somewhere. It was worth the while. And wherever you've landed, there's some merit for being in there, in that moment, in that place for you. So that's what I take from that. So taking the chance and shooting for the moon. You got it. Yeah, I love that. But the big fear I have with people, especially within this community of makers, is someone who thinks and thinks and thinks about starting a business and just never does because they're afraid. They're standing in their own way. And so your quote reminds me of that. That's very true. And I would have to say, even throughout the progress of business, growing a business, each product, each time you try a product, you're back in the saddle again. You're still shooting for the moon with that one product that may or may not be well received. And it still is putting yourself out there and hoping that it is successful and that other people also gravitate toward it. So even every day in everything we do, I think that this little quote still applies. I would agree with you. I'm going to ask you a question a little bit later because it'll then be in more context, but I'm going to prepare you for it now of what product did you put out there that didn't work? But we're going to do that later. So that's a little teaser for me and everyone who's listening because you probably already know your answer. Might be more than one. Okay. Well, that's okay too. All right. So I shared with everybody the start of your business, but tell us the story a little bit more in your own words the light bulb moment of your sweaters that were now like the size for a doll. Right. So my husband, who was being helpful and chipping in to help with the laundry, happened to scoop up all of my wool sweaters and throw them in with a normal load of laundry like we all have done. However, it wasn't one favorite sweater. It was a lot. And of course, they come out exactly like you said, doll size. 29 years ago, our daughters were then three and six, so tiny. I grew up behind a sewing machine, literally, and graphic design was my background throughout college and a short stint with that. So I kind of blended the two. I took my graphic design, my visual skills, my sewing skills, and the concept of the fact that they were little and looked like they'll fit little kids, but they're never quite right. I started to think if I just dismantled them and made the sleeves a little shorter, the fit would be better. Then I got to thinking that sleeve didn't have to go back on that sweater. And that's where our blend of color pattern and texture started. So it was really an evolution, just a trial error. Absolutely. Yes. And the creations I made for our young daughters then, I did not plan to start a business with. It was merely to salvage what was ruined. And I had so many people asking, where did I get them? How could they get one? And that was that light bulb moment. And I said, okay, there's a calling. Let's do this. Okay, so story check. You took that pile of sweaters after a few tears were probably shed, maybe some words spoken, I don't know. It's been so long, yeah. (laughs) So then you thought, well, you know we didn't do it on purpose, but still the result is the same, all your sweaters that you liked, right? So then you thought, okay, well, they are the size that could fit my daughters, so let me see what I can do with them. That's when you got to making, piecing things together that would work. Then people were asking you for them. 
which is incredible because you were getting product validation before you were even thinking about any type of a business. And clearly nobody was doing this before. That's right. Yes. And that's just exactly where we started. So I had so many people asking and I thought, okay, well, I think we have something here, a children's line naturally. And that's what I started with. And then that very first year that I was out marketing these children's creations, I had so many adult women saying, I would wear something like that. I don't have young children or grandchildren, but I would wear that. And I thought, okay, now I have a really big audience, an even bigger calling right now. However, what I'm shrinking now has to be supersized. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was my first hurdle, maybe. Oh, my gosh. So before we get too far along, and I know you've been in business for quite a while, so let's see how far back memory goes, okay? Okay. When you decided you were going to start your business, did you see people interested in the product and it started promoting the idea for you? Or did someone come up and say to you, man, you should start a business. I would buy this from you. No, it really was people asking for it and then kind of putting that together like, okay, there appears to be a market for this. And I really liked what I had created. So I was all gung-ho to go ahead and chase that. So go for it and see what happens. That's right. Okay. And so then what was the very first step you did? So we've talked about, okay, so now the concept is here. People are interested. And then you started talking about how now it wasn't just children, it was adults. But what did you actually do in that very beginning time to get your business started? So a couple of things. So with my business, the start of my business, it didn't take a lot of startup money or space. So I started in my home, in my basement, and I just needed a sewing machine and I needed to buy used sweaters, right? Mm -hmm. So that was pretty easy to do. I didn't have to go out and get a loan and set up a building and buy a lot of equipment and hire people on. So I started, it was just me with a little bit of equipment thrift shopping and it started to grow kind of quickly in that first year of the children's, like I said, morphing that into women's. One of the first things I did that kind of validated the fact that I was going into business was that I was approached by a rep. So a sales rep out of Chicago. And that was the first thing that made me feel like I was really like, this was real. So that was my real connection with selling to uh, retail stores and boutiques. Okay. And so where did this rep see your things? Were you doing shows already that first year? I was doing retail shows. However, it was somebody locally that had a boutique that thought that my product was really neat. And she thought this person would be a great rep for what I was producing. So it was a connection. So in the beginning, were you always thinking that you wanted to sell wholesale and have people stock your product in their shop? No, I really didn't. I probably didn't even know that that was a thing. Okay. I was direct to consumer because the consumer approached me first. As soon as that notion was put in my head, my world got a little bigger. And at the end, we kind of just never stopped at the wholesale. You know, that became really a focus for us. So you did make a switch at some point then from direct-to-consumer to wholesale? We really did, to the point where, you know, we blended the two types of marketing for quite some time, but we fell away from the direct-to-consumer just because our wholesale business grew a lot and we were plugging ourselves into a lot of venues over the years. We started to really push ourselves in that way, and I just feel like it really validated us as a business. 
However, we've morphed back into a lot of retail again, and we're back to blending both worlds, and it's been good for us. All right. So it sounds like over the course of the 25 or more years or so that the sales channel has changed. Like first it was retail, then it went more to wholesale, you were blending, then now you're back to retail. So you've just kind of gone with what the signs are that feel right for the business based on where you're getting the business. And probably also what feels right in terms of combining it with your production, whether you want to travel, all of those things. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah, they're all big considerations. You know, when you span almost three decades in business, things change. You have to roll with that. So we've made those adaptions along the way, according to where those markets have maybe slimmed out or new opportunities. Like when we started, there was no World Wide Web. And so we just kind of plugged ourselves into places where we've needed to. And in the end, we feel like there's merit to all of these venues. For instance, my wholesale stores, so many people know who we are because they found us in a store. I can't deny that that's a great way for us to continue to do business. And we continue to nurture those accounts and grow that area of our business. However, there are lots of places, little corners of the world that there aren't stores that carry us and people have heard of us or their friends wearing us, but they can't get it down the street. So we can become available to people in other ways when we cannot be in your backyard. Yeah. I mean, that's the huge benefit that exists today, I'd say, because you've got the web, you can still go out to shows and you can still do wholesale and all of them somewhat play into each other and help each other. It's not just a one and only. All right. So I meant to ask you this way in the beginning, and I have to ask you this because I don't think I ever heard this from you. But where did the name come from? It is so creative. Aha. That is always a question. Zuzu is my nickname for Sue. And Baba is for the wool because everything we make is from reclaimed woolens. So it always is part of our conversation, which is great. I don't think that we really thought that would be, but it doesn't matter if we're at a show or someone walks into my little retail store here off the beaten path or you and I are talking. It's always part of our conversation and it's pretty neat. Yeah, it's very cool. All right. So I think to help our listeners and for them to get as much out of the conversation as possible, let's talk about two different things. Let's talk about the retail side first, and then let's talk a little bit about wholesale. And then I have a couple of just random questions for you. All right. So direct to consumer. So that was what you started with way back when, before there was website, before you even knew about wholesale and the potential of getting your pieces into local boutiques, big or small. How did you start selling way in the beginning? We would do a lot of holiday markets, a lot of like junior league shows, holiday markets, at a point, art fairs, that sort of thing, because we're an artful product. So that's really how we started. And that's kind of all that was available in terms of being direct to our consumer, being right in their space. Did you have a good feel for who your consumer was? So in terms of being able to select the right shows, or was there some trial there? I don't think so. Well, I think that we had a product that was so unique that people gravitated toward it. I feel like we had success no matter where we went because we were pretty eye-popping. We were artful and handmade, so certainly our price reflected that. So that might have been one thing we had to keep in mind is 
the types of shows we were doing, what was the consumer that would be strolling the show. Right, for sure. And so how has the evolution of the shows gone over the course of this whole time? Well, we still do a lot of holiday and art fairs. It just kind of depends what our schedule is like. I mean, we really pack it in. We're a fourth quarter business. We start in January making our product to sit on a shelf for a good eight to nine months. And then rolling it out in the next three months is pretty challenging. So while we're in our busy, busy time of stocking our stores and maybe restocking our stores, it's also the time that we're doing those markets that are travel. So I sometimes don't know how we do it, but somehow we do. Yeah. So how many shows a year do you do approximately? Gosh, I'm looking at my chalkboard here. I still do a chalkboard. Don't look at last year's. Just start looking at this year's. (laughs) This is current. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, and last year we packed some in too, honestly. So I'm looking at 10 that are pretty local with the exception of a few that are Mm -hmm. out of state. So those are those art fairs and a few of the holiday shows there. In addition to that, we do the wholesale trade shows. So typically we would be in New York for the New York Now and gift show twice a year. That would be January and again in August. We also do the Philadelphia, used to be the Buyer's Market of American Craft. Now all these shows have changed names so many times and so recently. American Handcrafted. So that's the Philly show that's always in February. And then we've always done the American Craft Council Baltimore show, which also lines up with that. So essentially the month of February, we go to the East Coast and we stay out there for a month and we do all of those shows. So you are one travel donkey for sure. Yeah, (laughs) you could say so. (laughs) It's part of it. And, you know, we enjoy that as much as we enjoy staying right here and creating. So your year is made out of going to the shows. Then when the shows aren't in progress, you're really producing and creating but then the real big sales thrust is at the end of the year, end of third and fourth quarter. You're absolutely right. Yes. Talk a little bit about the shows in terms of tips or things that you've seen work best in your booth. Well, I obviously your presentation. So your booth design is really important. And I think accessibility to your product for us Everything has to be able to be touched, maybe tried on, a mirror, like making it easy for people to fall in love with what you do. Half of that is being able to touch it and maybe try it on. So I think those two things are really important. I love my customer base. I absolutely love interaction with my customers. So I just love the platform of being able to talk directly to my customers. So I think attitude and just some confidence, which I wouldn't say I had in the very beginning for anybody who's just starting. It's hard to put yourself out there and hope that everybody receives you as well as you want them to. Probably they will. But in the beginning, it's a hard place to throw yourself. But don't let that scare you. No, no. Well, I will tell you that it's very apparent that you enjoy people. You enjoy talking, sharing what I'll say, quote unquote, working your booth. You're not showing up as if it's your job. You're showing up that you really enjoy it. But I'm also going to say for people who have a product like yours where you're talking about, like they have to make a selection, they want to try it on, they want to see how it would fit. Mirrors are really important, as you said, because you can see that it fits, but you want to see how you look in it. 
why I was starting to talk about all of that is it makes someone who feels like they are an introvert and that it would be harder to talk. It gives you something to talk about because with you, you'll say, well, are you gravitating more to the autumn colors or do you like bright colors or do you like more of the black, white, gray blend? Like you're talking about a product, which makes it so much easier to interact with somebody. Yeah, I would agree. And I think also now you're taking the focus off from you and you're putting it onto the customer. Like what color do you like? Or we have five hat styles here. Which one speaks to you? What are you looking for in a hat for fit? Or this is a really feminine style. This one's a little sportier. Like suddenly you can get the customer talking about themselves and you can take that information and apply it to your sales technique and which product you would sell to that person. Right. Is there anything that you've learned over time in working in your booth that would be a key tip? Like I'm thinking signage or something about displays or how much inventory you have or like, are there any tips in that arena? Again, we've been at it so long and we've changed so much, I guess, because some things don't work as well as others. But yes, signage is really important. There were periods of time where we didn't have signage or we didn't have good signage. And signage with what the product is or pricing or when you say signage, what are you thinking there? I guess I'm talking about our brand because after a while, we did become a brand and people knew our name. And so we felt it was really important if someone were walking down an aisle that from a distance, they could see our logo and our name. So that became important to us. Oh, to make that very visible within the booth. You mean? Yes. So a customer who is familiar with your brand and maybe your logo and your name sees that and says, oh my gosh, they're with their friend. Oh my gosh, there's Baba Susan. We got to go down there. Or here's the thing I'll tell you, like not booth, but like I said, we have a retail store. We're off the beaten path here where we are in Northern Michigan. And we have some of the pure Michigan signs that are out on our highway, beautiful M22 corridor. And it's a directional sign that tells you where we are. Lots of people go by that sign and they're like, oh, honey, there's that Baba Zuzu, that hat I bought in Des Moines, Iowa. They're up the road here. No idea. Or we get people who pass our sign and go, what is that? We have got to go find out. Because the name is so unique. Yeah. And whether you know it or not, whether you know the name and you can connect with that or you don't and they're curious about who you are because of your name, I think that's been important for us, the signage. And then as far as you were asking maybe about like signage for styles or pricing, we always do pricing because you know what, when you're busy and you have 30 people in your booth or whatever, nobody wants to wait to ask. So we try to make things like that apparent. And then I feel like I do want to interact with my customers. So maybe we leave a little bit of things to question like the hat styles. I expect to engage with my customer all the time. So if there are some questions left or because I haven't put signage or something, like I think it's important to have that interaction with the customer. So do you intentionally leave a little bit of something out so that they'll talk with you? I don't know that I leave anything out, but maybe our product does take some explaining. So we have like a half dozen hat styles. We have three different types of mittens now, two different types of fingerless gloves. We have I don't know, a half dozen different scarves. I feel like they all take some explaining and you maybe you go, well, mittens are mittens. Well, 
there are things that are different maybe about our mittens or two types of fingerless gloves. And I couldn't put all that into written words. I feel like it takes some explaining. And the other thing is demonstrating. There are some of our products that I can sell hand over fist all day long because I put it on. And I think you have to be willing to do that. I was going to get to that. I'm so glad you said that because you always are wearing something of yours. Yes. And, you know, I mean, that's tough because if I'm at an indoor venue, I can't because we're outdoor. But I will take anything and put it on. If I'm at an art show and it's 90 degrees out, I will put a hoodie scarf on because somebody's asking about it. And all I have to do is show how it works. And I probably have a customer. Yeah, I think that's true. But demonstrate, I mean, that's almost signage in and of itself, you know, actually wearing the product. Yes. The thing, like a website, you don't have the opportunity to do what I was just explaining. So when you're in that place and space where you can do that, you have to take advantage of that. I agree with you totally. Let's stick with direct-to-consumer for a second. What happened when you had an opportunity now to go online? Enter in the game-changing World Wide Web. Sue's going to share with us how she integrated this into her business right after a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Yes, it's possible. Increase your sales without adding a single customer. How, you ask? By offering personalization with your products. Wrap a cake box with a ribbon saying, Happy 30th birthday, Annie. Or add a special message and date to wedding or party favors for an extra meaningful touch. Where else can you get customization with a creatively spelled name or find packaging that includes a saying whose meaning is known to a select two? Not only are customers willing to pay for these special touches, they'll tell their friends and word will spread about your company and products. You can create personalized ribbons and labels in seconds. Make just one or thousands without waiting weeks or having to spend money to order yards and yards. Print words in any language or font. Add logos, images, even photos. Perfect for branding or adding ingredient and flavor labels too. For more information, go to theribbonprintcompany.com. In the beginning, our wholesalers, our stores that we sold to, were especially unhappy about that. It was a really challenging transition. And as you can imagine, because it's been really tough for the retail industry to go to battle with online sales. So it was tough for us to kind of mollycoddle our customers and go into this new way of selling, though we absolutely had to. We could not ignore that there's a customer over here and we had to be part of this evolution and this new way. But our old way was still so important to us. So the first thing that we did was we put our website on our hang tags one year, the year that we had a website. And I remember some of our stores were really pretty outraged and, oh, they would come back to me and they'd say, I'm going to tell you right now that the second we get your product in, we cut that part of your hang tag off right away. So I knew it was a tough road, but it also was a new time for everyone. So in that period of time, and there was all this resistance, here we are, fast forward now 15 years or 20 years, and... There isn't anybody in the world that wouldn't have a product without a website. Right. It was kind of some rough water there. Yeah. I mean, you could see. I mean, they're definitely feeling that it's threatening their ability to sell your product, too. But I would imagine, like, once they actually got going, I mean, your product, because they're all one of a kind for the most part, and every one of them is just a little bit different, there is such an advantage of picking out that exact one that you want in person. 
And that was our selling point. That's what our kind of rebuttal was. Look, I understand your frustration, but I will tell you that the 12 pair of mittens that are coming to your store on September 15th are the only 12 pair that look like that. So I think that smoothed things over a little bit for us and other people didn't have the same luxury, but it appeased some and not so much others. And then time softened that. Yeah. And you're right. Time did soften that. And now we're all used to it. I mean, it's just accepted. But it's a good example of the way business changes and evolves. And you have to accommodate and adjust with it, I guess I'd say. Right. Yes. All right. So you have also been an exhibitor at the At Home Craft and Gift Show. That's right. So this whole new segment of opportunity, and I'm actually calling this, Sue, I don't know if you and I have had this conversation, maybe we have, but I'm really feeling like these virtual shows are a category unto themselves. So they're obviously, it's a direct-to-consumer, so it would either be instead of going into someone's store or going to a craft show or online. Like I'm looking at this as not just an option as a different version of a craft show, I'm looking at it as something entirely different. I'd love for you to share with us your experience. You were in the December show, the holiday show, because you already told us you're a seasonal product with all yes. the wool. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and it would be great to hear because you've had a lot of experience with all different types of shows. So share with us a little bit about what happened for you at the at-home show. Okay, so the highlight of that show for us was the fact that there was a live portion of the show. So I'll just shift back a little bit to COVID and what that did to us as far as shows, which is no surprise, they were all canceled. And immediately some of the art fairs that we would do, and especially all of our wholesale shows started to offer virtual shows, which we thought was a great, I mean, what are we gonna do? It's all there is. And one of the venues for a wholesale virtual show, they have been in the tech, I guess, tech digital marketing for quite some time. And I was sure they would have a live portion of the show. I was so disappointed when they didn't. All of those shows have yielded little to no results. And I was so excited about the at-home show because of that live portion. And it just like all the things I've been talking about, about being able to interact with our customer became available again, even though we had to be remote, we could be in touch with people. So I had people call during that show, they came into our booth virtually came in. So they're live on my screen. They bought my product for years. They were from out East, but they've never met me. They've never been to a show that I've been at. Now, suddenly somebody who knows me because they bought my product, maybe in a store, and they're loyal to my product. They love it. They bought it off my website. They were so delighted to be able to meet me as if we were standing in my 10 by 10 booth somewhere. I think that that is such a valuable tool to any digital marketing, any digital shows that will happen or virtual shows that will happen. That live portion is just, it's essential. Yeah, it's really key. It was so fun with you and your product specifically, too, because, of course, I did my share of shopping and we could go through and I could say, oh, for my son. And then you could ask me and then you could show me like you just held up because remember, and I'm talking to people who are listening now, not you, Sue, obviously, but all of Sue's <laughs> products look different. 
you can hold up then, Sue, like, okay, well, do you think he'd like this pair? And you show me the left and the right hand glove or this pair, right left hand glove. And then I'd say, oh, I like the ones on the right. And you say, okay, sold. And you would start making me my pile of things. Yes. So it was a really fun experience. You know how we talk about how retail shops now, it's all about experience. This was kind of like being in an online retail shop combined because I was looking at you, you were showing me pieces that were available, I was making decisions. It was kind of like then, okay, you were putting them at the checkout counter for me. It really was the closest thing to being in a store or a booth for me as well. It just really, really did emulate that experience. Wonderful. And I know you're going to be there this coming year too, right? The holiday show. I am. Yes. One more time. So anyone who wants to see Sue's things, it's going to be end of November, December. You'll definitely want to come. That's the At Home Craft and Gift Show. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. We've already talked a lot on the podcast about that show. So we're not going to go into more of that now. I want to continue on with your story because I see my list of questions and I see the time going by. So let's talk a little bit, just address your wholesale portion of the business. So at what point did that enter in, if you were thinking number of years in, when did you start selling wholesale? So probably two years in, we hooked up with that rep out of Chicago, as I explained to you. And then we had a friend in a local store, he had a gift store, and he attended what was then, as I said, the Buyer's Market of American Craft in Philadelphia, which was all handcrafted American-made products. And we thought that would be a good fit for us. So we put that on our list, I guess. We juried in. We got into that show. And I always say that show was the gateway to wholesale business for us. We just had immediate success. All of the top galleries in the country attended that show. And it was, oh my gosh, those were the days, like they say. (laughs) I mean, it was shoulder-to-shoulder buyers. The enthusiasm and our product was just so fresh and new and there was nothing like it. Like I said, our success out of the starting gate was pretty immediate. We were lucky for that. You know, we continued there for years and then we started to add things like the New York Now and we would be in their American-made handcrafted section. And we just grew into other formats or venues that catered to that as we grew our production. What about any adjustments you had to make in the business to accommodate wholesale, like pricing or production, anything on that end? Because we started with our children's wear, and then we almost, at the time that we morphed into the adult, we had started off with our connection in Chicago, and we had our wholesale pricing we started with right away. So I think that that's always hard, though. I think that pricing your own product is very hard. I think you get scared of pricing yourself out of the market. You undercut yourself. We deal with it even still today. And we go, how much can you sell a pair of mittens for? So the price of Polar Tech is going up like crazy, our liner. You know that labor is always going up. We have employees who have been here for a good long time. We have to reward them for that. So I would say pricing is always really hard, especially when you have to jump your price for the same product. Mm-hmm. That gets tough. I'm not the only one. I mean, everybody has to do that. I think that's a hard place in wholesale. But again, the number of years we've been at it, we're, you get wiser and you do what you have to do. Yeah. You know, it sounds like you didn't have too much of a struggle because you were in still a little bit product development because you were also now creating an adult line. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you weren't having as much of a comparison to past products because you didn't have a full established line of adult yet. You were still in the development. You're exactly right. Yes. Yeah. But it's something that I think everyone, if you're thinking about eventually your interest is doing wholesale, because some people it isn't, you know, it's a whole different animal. It's a whole different way of running business. It puts different Mm -hmm. pressures on different areas of the business, you know, employees with production. If you're running a lot, the pricing's different. It's just a different animal. You can do one or the other or both. There's lots of options (laughs) there. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't dream of omitting either. I just think that we see value in all of the ways that we market and sell our products. Oh, that's good input. Really good. But having that plan and thinking about that and considering those different avenues up front, and then you don't get caught with pricing. Like if you price too low direct to consumer, and then you have a wholesale opportunity, then your pricing is going to be way off if you didn't plan for it initially. Yes. And obviously, you don't want to undercut your retailers. And I know some people make the mistake of doing that. Maybe some people starting out. So it is really important to set your price so that if you expect to get into wholesale, you have the buffer to do that. Right. The other thing I would say that's really important with wholesale business is on-time delivery. We just have never not delivered on time. I mean, you will burn a bridge so fast. I mean, you are better off saying you can't have us for three months than you can have it one month from now and not delivering. So be really fair to yourself about what you will promise and if you can deliver that promise. That's really good input for sure. So what role does social media play in your business? So I would say a lot. And I am not a big social media fan. (laughs) I like the tone of your voice when you said that. (laughs) Well, you know why? Because I feel like it's a big time consumer and I don't have that kind of time. So honestly, I pay someone to do mine and it's not inexpensive, but I feel like we cannot live without it. For a while, this is why I said that the way I said it. For the longest time, I feel like we spend money and there's no way to measure what it does for us. So what that you get likes or do you know what I mean? So what that you have followers, does it transfer to dollars? And it is really hard to say that it does or doesn't. So for me, the girl that I use or the marketing team that I use, she does a lot more than that for us. So not only does she post on our Instagram and Facebook is what we use. Not only does she does our posts three times a week, she actually comes and chooses the product. She finds models. She styles shots and the models. And so if it were me and I were directing my own social marketing, I would be the girl in every shot because where am I going to get a model every three days? And I would be in front of the red barn outside of my facility. So I just felt like even if it didn't turn into direct dollars, I was getting something over here. And then I had this beautiful photo library that I could use for lots of other marketing. So I feel like I had to make it work for me in more ways than just what we know to be Facebook and Instagram postings. And then last year, again, with all of our crazy changes, I had her do a Facebook advertising campaign for us that was super successful. And if you wanted details for me, I couldn't tell you because I don't understand all of that. But I feel better about social marketing than I used to in terms of money spent. So I'm more of a believer, but I think it's hard to throw money at that and feel okay about it in terms of what will come back at you for that. 
Well, when you start doing ads, then you're able to measure much better. Correct. I think it's the evolution of social overall, too, because social initially was free. You know, all you did was post. Mm -hmm. You could get a lot of attention for nothing. And all of that has now changed. And so now you have to do ads. But before social media, we would put money in promoting through newspapers. You're talking about outdoor that you do. All different types of things. So it's just another version of that. And once you then start doing ads, then you can track. And like you, I see success with Facebook ads. And, you know, and I just look at it as it's just a different way to promote your business. You've got to get people out there seeing what you're doing before they can even think of making a purchase. Whether it's driving them to your website, driving them to a show you're going to be at, selling directly through the platforms, all of that. Yeah. Another thing in the last year, we switched over to the Shopify website platform. My favorite. (laughs) There's so much information behind the scenes there about where your sales are coming from Mm -hmm. and or your visitors on your site. And so, again, we were able to track our Facebook or our Instagram sales or website visitors. And I felt more comfortable about throwing money at it when I could really see what it was doing for us. Right. I mean, this has been a common challenge, even through the huge brands that spend millions and millions of dollars, you know, and people trying to justify their positions in the beginning, when there'd be social media departments. It's like, okay, we're spending all this money. We've hired you, you're spending weeks, how do we track it back? Like what portion of the sales is attributable to that? And I mean, it continues to be a challenge. So I agree with you, you're right on with your assessment with that. Yeah, I'm happy to be a little bit on the other side of it because, yeah, you heard me start out with the hesitation. and Yeah, no, it was cute. I had to call it out because it was just so cute. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I mean, when the girl that we work with, when we approached her, I just said flat out, I was like, I just have to tell you hands down, I am a skeptic, but here I am. Sell me. Well, and she clearly did that. So that's awesome. All right. We have to approach this one other question that we were talking about earlier. I'm dying to know, and one or two or whatever you want to respond to this, let's talk about one of the products that you put out in the market that you saw just wasn't going to get traction. Give us one of those stories. Okay. So I probably did this not once, not twice, but three times, a spring line. So we're all winter. And I actually, I mean, yesterday I had a phone call from somebody, do we make a spring jacket? And I tried it three different ways and failure, failure, failure. So, you know, I just couldn't find things that would resonate with what we are known for, which is wool, winter, and recycled. And I tried recycled kimonos. I tried recycled upholstery sample fabrics. It just didn't resonate with our customer. I mean, it was a flop every single Mm -hmm. time. And I, at this point, I'm not really unhappy about that. I'm thrilled because I never have to say yes to that again. (laughs) Right. You could ask me all day long to do a spring line and I would tell you no with ease. So I'm happy to be in that place. And that's sometimes what failure or little non-successes, that's sometimes what they're for is to get you back on track. Or I'm happy to say I tried it and I don't have to go there again. Yeah. Well, strategically, it would make sense. If there is a hole in your year of selling and you could fill it with a product with your existing audience, why would you not try and do that? 
Absolutely. If people had loved it, if they had eaten it up, I would be so happy to be turning it. I say I would be happy, though I didn't love doing it as much as I love what we do, but I would do it. But you're absolutely right. I would do it if people were clamoring for it. But now you know. I mean, people are very clear in what you offer, right? There's no question about what you offer. And if you had a spring line, it would a little bit dilute the brand that you have now. You know, and honestly, it did. It took us away from that. And, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't the best direction for us to go in. But like I said, we had to try it more than once. And the results not working was probably the best thing for you. As you said, you tried it. Now you can be very clear that that is not a direction for you. So now you can be true, solid, streamlined, focused on what you're doing. Absolutely. Recognizing exactly what time of the year is for sales, what time of the year is for more production, what time of the year is going out to trade shows to get your product into the stores in time for your sales period. Like all of that is so clean and clear. Yeah, you're right. The breakdown of how you put that is exactly how we break down our time in a calendar year. So yes. Beautiful. Wonderful. So give us a peek into what you think the future holds for you. Oh, boy. It's not a spring line, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I think just expanding our markets, I feel like we have a pretty good product line size, so almost 50 products. And I would like to see us in more markets. And I'm not really sure with the wholesale industry is pretty challenging right now as far as growing into that. Not sure how to do that, but... I know that in our digital marketing and sales, we'll continue. We put into place some new tools last year that were really successful for us. I'm excited to see those take off and drive more website traffic to us. If you recall the Bernie Sanders mittens, mm-hmm. yep. that thing did wonders for us. People were Googling sweater mittens and our girl that monitors our website, does our SEO, does a great job. And she has us out there front and center and people landed on our site. And I'm telling you, our sales in January and February and half of March were like December all over again. And I know that's where they stemmed from. So we grew our audience. Most of those contacts, they were first time buyers. And four days later, we were shipping to them again. And seven days later, they were taking another shipment. So I love expanding our customer base and getting our product out there further. We probably don't have any new products this year. We had a couple of pieces last year that we didn't get a chance to throw out there. So they're a little bit new to our customer base this year. It's tough for us to come up with completely new product when we are breaking down the post-consumer sweaters that we use. We have a lot of limitations. So we're cutting around armholes and side seams and it's not like yards of fabric on a roll. The sky is not the limit. So when we kind of tool a way to break down those sweaters into our new product, it takes a lot to get that product or that process into place. So completely new product is tough for us. We try to come out with one or new two things a year. We hardly retire anything every now and then. Something is slow and we'll take it off from our list of things. But then our line grows pretty big and it's kind of hard to continue to make in all of our colorways and Right. No, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is you're staying in your lane. You know, you know what you offer. A couple of style variations are fine. Still, every single piece is unique unto itself anyway, even if it's the same basic pattern of how the sizes and everything. So you almost have a built-in uniqueness. Every single piece is different. 
Yeah, I mean, it's tough because we want to stay fresh with our customers. However, there are things like, okay, say our fingerless gloves, which is our number one seller alongside of our mittens. People will come into our store and say, oh my gosh, I'm buying my sixth pair of these. And we feel like, oh, we need to offer a different style. So we do, we have a second style, but with other things that's tough, like our mittens, you can't add a second thumb and call it a new style. But we've done little things like we offer our classic wool mittens now with the option of a buckskin palm for driving. And that's another thing. A lot of our customers ask for something. And when we hear it enough, we know it's go time to maybe try something or it spawns a new idea. So we get a lot of our ideas from customers that we run with. And that is one of them. The other thing is we have a nice little men's line. Guys, we're coming in all the time. What about us? And we're like, what about them? Why don't we do this? <laughs> so we can make some small, like you said, adjustments to some of our products to expand our line without it being too much of a challenge. Right. But you're staying true to the product and what people know you for. You're just making some adjustments within the whole product range. Correct. And, you know, I would say over the course of our time, our product has just gotten better, more better made. And our quality is just really top notch. And not that we didn't always sell a good product, but we're always looking for ways to tweak the quality and the fit. Mm -hmm. So even little things like that, little changes that don't make it a completely new product, we feel we've made it a better product. Got it. Well, I can endorse the product quality for sure. (laughs) Thank you. If people who are listening want to go check out your products, where would you send them? So we are at babazuzu.com and that's B-A-A-B-A-A-Z-U-Z-U.com. You can check in with us right here and ask if there's somebody who sells our product in your backyard. We have to do a little zip code check here, but we're happy to do that for you. We also have an Amazon store and an Etsy store. So you can find us there under Baba Zuzu as well. Wonderful. Well, Sue, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show, pulling back the curtain a little bit and letting us see what goes on at Baba Zuzu from start to where you are now. Thanks for the opportunity. Good stuff, yes? I talk in my Maker's MBA program about how you need to make sure that your product and business practices stay relevant with the times. Sue's leadership and direction of the Baba Zuzu brand is a perfect demonstration of this. Next week, I'm taking you to the movies. Think the Sundance Channel and HBO. Any ideas on what the topic is? Find out first thing Monday morning when this episode goes live. I'm also curious, how do you like my Thursday Tips and Talks segment? I can't believe that they've been airing for over four months already. Gosh, does time fly by. Comments on this? Topics that you'd like me to cover? DM me over on Instagram at giftbizunwrapped with your thoughts. And if you're feeling generous today, a review over on Apple Podcasts would be amazing. Doing that helps the show get seen by more makers, so it's a great way to pay it forward. Did you see the new layout in the Apple Podcasts app? It's entirely different. The subscribe button is now gone. And what you do instead is follow a show. You do that by tapping the check mark that's right up on the right-hand side at the top. Just something new to get used to. And now, be safe and well, and I'll see you again next week on the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. I want to make sure you're familiar with my free Facebook group called Gift Biz Breeze. It's a place where we all gather and are a community to support each other. 
got a really fun post in there that's my favorite of the week, I have to say, where I invite all of you to share what you're doing, to show pictures of your product, to show what you're working on for the week, to get reaction from other people, and just for fun, because we all get to see the wonderful products that everybody in the community is making. My favorite post every single week, without doubt. Wait, what? Aren't you part of the group already? If not, make sure to jump over to Facebook and search for the group Gift Biz Breeze. Don't delay. Come join us in Gift Biz Breeze. Today, 